This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session number 70. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to a truly outstanding episode we have. This is episode number 70. Seven zero. We are just packing them in week after week. This particular episode is brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and DistroKid. We'll discuss DistroKid a little bit later in the episode, as well as Audio Technica, of course. But my friends, we truly have an outstanding episode for you today. If you clicked on the link, you already know who the guest is. There's no hiding that. It's no big surprise here. But we are talking about Al Schmidt and his longtime assistant of 15 years, Steve Genowick. And I'm just, I'm humbled and honored to have been able to speak with these two guys. What, what do you say? I mean, Al has been at this for a long time. He's, at this point, he's 85 years old. I don't know many 85-year-old engineers who are such badasses as Al. Of course, Al has a long credit list that includes, I mean, it goes to, you know, Henry Mancini, Sam Cooke, uh, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, Sammy Davis Jr., Natalie Cole, Thelonious Monk, Elvis Presley, Madonna, Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney. I mean, this list just doesn't stop. It just keeps going. You know, we see these credits and we kind of go, wow, I mean, this guy's been at it for a while and he's done a lot, but here's where it gets really interesting for you and for me and well, for all of us, really. You may have heard about this, but there is a video coming out called The Art of Recording a Big Band, and it was filmed at Capitol Studios in Hollywood over two days, and it was during a recording session by Al that featured uh, Chris Walden's 19-piece big band group, and the film really focuses on Al, who's easily one of the most celebrated you know, music engineers, producers, and mixers of all time. Uh, I mean, he's won 22 Grammy Awards. Uh, his most recent Grammy came in 2012 for uh, Paul McCartney's Kisses on the Bottom. Um, during his career, you know, he has recorded and mixed more than 150 golden platinum albums. I mean, unbelievable. So here's an opportunity that you're going to get, and I don't have dates of this yet uh, because Steve and Al did not have dates, but there's going to be an opportunity for you to purchase either on DVD or by download this documentary. and. I was very lucky that they sent me uh, an advanced link, so I was able to preview the film and check it out. And I've done a lot of sessions. Many of you have done a lot of sessions. But let's face it. I mean, for me personally, I've recorded a lot of, we'll just say bands, rock bands, you know, four or five piece bands, and and maybe some choruses, some strings, uh, but nothing Nothing on par with what this film shows. Recording this big band with uh, all these horns and rhythm section. And it's uh, it's not only educational, it's a very inspirational documentary. And it includes interviews with, with of course, Steve Genowick, Chris Walden, Dave Pensato, Ryan Hewitt, Kenny Wilde. And uh, strangely enough... And, you know, Ryan, Ryan Hewitt, of course, has been, you know, on, on Working Class Audio before. But strangely enough, Andrew Sheps is in the film as a participant, as one of the guys that showed up to do this to do this seminar, which is really interesting. And, you know, we all have great respect for Andrew, and he's quite a badass himself. But to see someone who you admire like Andrew sitting there 
with great patience and focus watching what's happening, it kind of puts it all into perspective. It's kind of like, I don't know, I'm sure I could make some Star Wars Jedi references, but I think you, I think you get where I'm going with it. Yeah. So anyways, the film is coming out, The Art of Recording in Big Band, and we talked about that. That's pretty much a lot of what we talked about in our conversation, which you'll, you'll hear. And um, I cannot stress the importance of Steve Jenowick's role in this. Al is, I mean, without a doubt, he is a true badass, a true Jedi master, if you will. But Steve's role in this is really important as well. And when you watch the film, you're going to really see how these two individuals just work like a well-oiled machine, I think is the best way to put it. It's pretty inspiring to see them just work together in such a fluid way with so many people in the band and so many people just observing them. I was I was getting stressed out just watching, having all those people in the room with them, just seeing that. Because I like to keep my sessions kind of, you know, controlled as much as possible. But uh, yeah, here are all these people. And in the midst of it were these two true pros of, of, of our industry, uh, just kind of, you know, making it look easy, I got to say. So there it is, Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick coming up shortly. Before we get into that, I do want to tell you about DistroKid, who is one of the sponsors of this show today, of this particular episode. DistroKid's a little bit different sponsor than our other sponsors because our other sponsors are all pro audio sponsors. DistroKid is a digital aggregator. So most of you know what that is. And for those of you that don't, it's basically if you have music that you want to release digitally on iTunes or Spotify, you go through an aggregator. Popular ones are like CD Baby and TuneCore. DistroKid, they are an aggregator just like CD Baby and TuneCore. Usually these these companies charge you per release or they charge you uh, per release per year to keep your stuff up there. So that can add up really quick, especially if you're, you know, a super prolific artist. DistroKid charge you one fee every year, and that fee in this case is $19.99. And it's got some upgrade possibilities if you're, you know, a label or, you know, you're in multiple bands. But if you are a single artist and you want to release, I don't know, let's say you release a single a month and or an album every four or five months, I don't know. I, I know that's kind of absurd, but... If you're super prolific, those other services charge you every time you upload something. The folks at DistroKid actually just charge you a one-time fee once a year. So you pay your $19.99, you upload your stuff constantly throughout the year. And then you just re-up at the end of the year for another $19.99. So it's quite cost-effective. You get to keep 100% of your royalties. They're the fastest at uploading the material to the services like Spotify or iTunes. And I asked Philip Kaplan, the CEO, how is that even possible? Because most of these services, you submit the music and it doesn't get up there until, you know, three days, five days, two weeks later. And, and he explained to me that they automate the entire process of all that metadata. They have a way that you make one submission and in many cases, within a day, your stuff will be up on those services. And sometimes he said there's there's even a possibility to have your stuff up within the hour, you know, based on when I guess the servers all talk to each other and do their thing. So very interesting service, DistroKid. And we've got a 10% discount uh, for WCA listeners. And I know many of you are engineers and you're, you don't release music and you're probably thinking, well, how does this work for me? Well, if you want to be uh, an extra help to the artists you work with, you might want to turn them on to this and uh, pass them through, of course, working class audio and get them, get them a 10% discount. 
this service to, from DistroKid, I think, is just the best deal out there. So that's why we brought them on. And also, one of the bonuses is, is that uh, Daniel Harmon, uh, who works over there, is a avid working-class audio listener. So, Daniel, thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for letting us know about DistroKid. So there it is, DistroKid. Check them out. The banner is up on the uh, website now. All right, well, I think it's time to jump into it. I'm, I'm very excited to play this interview. It was uh, I was a little nervous going into it, but very, very excited to uh, talk with Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick. So let's do that right now. Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Matt. Al. How are you, Al? You need a little more makeup. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Can you see us at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. How unlucky for you. (laughs) Uh, You should hear him in the headphones. Oh, I hate headphones. Once I figure out how to use this console. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now. Hey, yeah, here th- we are. This is like your first day, right, Steve? Yeah. And this is Al's second day. Yep. Yeah. Because he's older than me. I'm older than everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, sure. Happy to be here. We have a mutual friend in Jerry Stucker. Oh, <laughs> I love Jerry. And Jerry, uh, uh, he has told me for the last year, you got to get Al on. You really got to get Al on. <laughs> I called him the other day and I said, "Hey, Steve and Al are both going to be on." And he was he was over the moon. Oh. He was very happy about it. Well, great. Well, tell him hello for me. Yeah, for oh, both of us. He's a good I, guy. I got the link. I watched the movie yesterday. You're one of the only ones that's seen it. What do you think? Very interesting to to watch you work and work in that context with uh, the pressure of a big band and as well as having all those people in the room. Yeah, well, we're used to that. Yeah, that's kind that of happens, normal for us. Happens a lot. Was it educational for you, or did you think if young guys watching will oh, learn yeah. from it? Because that's the basic part. That's what we're trying to get across. I think a lot of people, young and old alike, will get a lot out of it. Watching the two of you work together was absolutely fascinating <laughs> to me. Well, after 15 years, you know, it's like uh, we we don't even talk to one another half the time, you know? We just instantly know what the other person needs and wants. It's an amazing thing for both of us, uh, I have to tell you. You said it in the film, Al. You said uh, we spend more time with each other than we do with our wives. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Al, you've been at this a long time. That I mean, that doesn't need any explanation. Everyone knows that. I think what I'm intrigued by is, I mean, you've worked with a lot of assistants over the years. So what did you see in Steve that made you go, I want to work with that guy? I want that guy, guy standing there. Well, what happened was I was working with uh, a guy who turned out to be a great engineer also, Bill Smith, for about seven or eight years. And it was great. And Bill decided he had wanted to go on his own. He felt he was ready to, you know, make that move. And Steve was kind of the next guy in line. So after one day, first of all, the most important thing is that we liked one another. And and then when I realized how much Steve knew technically and about Pro Tools and all the other things, it just, it, it was a totally relaxing thing for me. I just didn't have to worry about any of that shit. You know, he was yeah. just, and he's so on top of it. And I know he's sitting right here, but if he wasn't sitting <laughs> right here, I'm telling you, he's he's worth his weight in gold for me. I mean, I I, I don't know of anybody who, could be as good as he is. On top of that, he's turned out to be a hell of a good engineer. I mean, 
I'm mixing something with Michael Bublé now that he recorded. Big band stuff with strings, and and it's fantastic. So, you know, whether he learned a lot from me or whatever, he whatever it is, he's learned whatever very well, and he's amazing. What was really fascinating to me as well is, Steve, were you in the in the film? Were you, are, are you able to read charts? Yes. yes. That, that's what I thought. I thought Steve's reading that chart out to him. That's and the communication between the two of you, like trumpets are going to be open here. Here comes the piano yeah. solo. Yeah, that's when it gets down to the session. That's a big part of of when we're actually yeah. recording. That's yeah. because Al's mixing as he goes. So he's when you see him moving faders, those faders are actually the record level going to tape. Um, so you're you know so when I yell out you know trumpets are in mutes and he's pushing up the fader that's not a monitor fader it's it's recording hotter to tape so so he's actually mixing as the recording is going on so so we have to know you know we have a pretty good communication as to what's going yeah. on I, I, and as as far as me reading the charts I couldn't play that but I can read it I yeah. can follow the charts I know what's going on um, when I started working here at Capitol. You know, they started handing, we started doing movie scores and big band sessions. They started handing me scores. And I'm like, oh, crap, here we go. I actually went back to community college and took music theory classes for a year. Wow. Just so I could, because they were handing me, the, you know, a composer would say, all right, we're going to punch in at bar 32, you know, the second time through the repeat. And I had to know where that was. Watching the two of you work, it was like watching um, a small team of NASA engineers, <laughs> l- like launching the shuttle or something. All right. Uh, it just, it just happens so fluidly. It's funny the the guys that were here for the the seminar, you know, kept saying, you know, we kept saying, you know, what did you guys, what impressed you the most? And they kept saying, we can't believe how fast you guys go. <laughs> like the speed of it was just yeah. mesmerizing to them. And and we get that a lot from from a lot of people. Like you guys are just so fast. It's it's amazing. Well, Al, I would imagine that your trust in Steve allows you to just get in your zone and do your thing without even thinking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I'm there mixing, I don't worry about anything else. I know Steve's got everything covered and I'm not perfect. So I make mistakes and Steve is right there to let me know, watch it, you know, watch what you grab in there or watch whatever. So he's, he stays on top of me too. So it, it's, it's very comforting to know you got somebody there that's watching out for what you do. Yeah. yeah. And those, you know, they're big sessions. It's, it's more than a one person job, yeah. no matter who's doing it. So you yeah. always, you always, I mean, when I'm, when I'm recording, I always have an assistant with me that, you know, and I tell them, look, if you see something that looks weird, right. you know, Say tell something. me, yeah. you know, don't yeah. shout it out across the room, obviously. But the know. other thing that, that Steve and I, Steve and I are, are really friendly guys. And so we, we have a great rapport with all the musicians, studio musicians, they like us. We like them. We go out. They ask how you're doing. What the, you know, we joke around with them and everything else. So, so when if we need something from them, they bend over backwards to give us what we need, and we do the same for them. So, you know, it really works well. And I know that when, when a big date comes in the studio and they know that Steve and I are at, they they all kind of relax a little bit. They don't have to worry. They know it's going to sound good. Um, and they know they're not going to have a lot of problems. They know the headphones are going to work. The headphones will be perfect. <laughs> That's funny, actually. I had a question about that. Um, managing headphones for that many musicians, 
I take it they all have their own little queue systems by uh, their side? It, it depends. Some of them, not yeah. A, yeah. Usually we set it up, especially when we're here at Capitol, we have a, a manly headphone system. It's pretty robust. They have 12 channels. So usually the rhythm section has their own, like the guys in the rhythm section can kind of create their own mix based on what I submix into that. Mm-hmm. And then like horn players and string players typically listen to a mono cue because they're balancing in the room. And that's typically a cue that just has like bass and drums and maybe a little piano. Yeah, it. rhythm. Rhythm stuff. Okay. Um, so it, it depends on who we, and then the singer, you know, I might have a different cue for the singer. Um, it, it's getting kind of crazy now with these, with the mixers and what everybody wants and expects. <clears throat> and we used to say it used to be a lot easier. We'd make two mixes. One had a lot of vocal, one had no vocal, and you just dealt with it. But yeah. they don't do that anymore. <laughs> Now they they just like us have too many choices. Exactly. Well, I mean, it, yeah, we have another separate mixer. I have a Mackie mixer that I mix all the headphones right. on. It's, and the other thing is that when when the musicians can hear really well in the phones, they play better anyway. They're much more comfortable, and so it and makes everybody uh, everybody's job easier. I think one of my favorite days we were doing a Barbara Streisand record, and she came in three days into the record, and she said, "Hey Al, can I ask you a question?" Which always means, "Oh God, here it comes." <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> She said, how come I haven't complained about the headphones? <laughs> and I took that as a compliment. Yeah, she always she always <laughs> problems with the headphones. She, you know, Steve gave her what she wanted without her, her even knowing what she wanted. It was great. Huh. Yeah, that ability to second guess and just or, or, or know what they want when they don't even before know. They, before they know what they yeah. want. That comes, pr- comes with experience. Yeah, you can't. That's the part you can't learn in school. Yeah, <laughs> or right. on the internet, you know. Steve, you mentioned it earlier. You said when you're mi- when Al is mixing, he's actually mixing those levels to a Pro Tools rig. I assume all the faders in Pro Tools are at Unity. Yes, and that so that when you pull that mix up, say the second day, you essentially with the faders at Unity already have about about eighty to ninety percent of the record is there. So yeah. mixing it is kind of like there's not much going on. No, just uh, setting echoes and panning and whatever. But I try to, when I'm recording, even pan out like I'm going to pan it when I mix and so forth. So, yeah, we pull it up. It's pretty much there. And then it's a matter of tweaking and doing whatever. Yeah, We always have a live mix going flipped back into Pro Tools. And the difference between the live mix and Al's final mix is is really not. I mean, there's details, obviously, but... The basic vibe of the record is there from take one. A live mix meaning a two-track layback going uh, in. Yeah, as it goes down. <clears throat> yeah. okay. okay. And to answer your question before, yeah, Pro Tools for us is just a tape machine. So we okay. have pretty big rigs here. I mean, I think all our rigs are like 80 inputs and right. 70 or 80 outputs. So it, it's all everything, you know, we don't we do not do a lot of like busing stuff together anymore. Once in right. a while we do, but it's all one-to-one, but it's all, yeah, everything's at Unity <clears> and it goes in and comes right back out to the console. And at 192, we do everything, you know, at the highest res. And- yeah, the highest mm-hmm. rate we can. And uh, no EQ. Uh, now, <laughs> you mentioned that specifically in the film, but is that no EQ going down and no EQ on mixing? Yeah, no EQ ever. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, that's how I learned, you know. I mean, yeah. I, I learned from Tommy Dowd. I spent eight years with Tommy Dowd. And um, and we learned that we didn't have equalizers back then. We had one equalizer, a cinema equalizer. And if you used it, it equalized everything. So you couldn't put it in on the vocal or on the bass or, or you know, it just went in on everything. So we never used it. So... 
our equalization came from we wanted something a little brighter. We put a brighter mic on it. And so so everything we do, all our equalization comes from mics and placement of microphones. So it's just the way I learned. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that everybody should try that, but, you know, it's instinctive to me. That is just genuine craft. I'll do equalization if it's a tape I got that I'm mixing that I didn't record and I want to, you know, bend it to sound similar to what I would do. Then I'll use some EQ and help straighten things out a little bit. But otherwise, when I record, I never use EQ and I, I'm same with mixing. How many years have you been working out of Capitol? Uh, my first date here was in 1972. Uh, yeah, that was my first date here. I used to come by here all the time. I had a lot of good friends that worked here and uh, and in the production staff. So I would come by and check out dates and stuff. But uh, the first time I had a chance to work here was in 72. It was a Michael Franks record. Yeah, it was great. And I was blown away by the way it sounded. You have this knowledge and trust of that room. You probably know the room like the back of your hand. Pretty much, yeah. I know the room. I know where I want to put things. And, uh, yeah, I have it down pretty well. It's a great room, too. I, I, I got to tell you, it the room makes our job a lot easier because it is a good, the acoustics are great. You also mentioned in the film uh, that you're kind of a microphone freak. Yes, I am. I, I, as I watched, you know, the mic placement of everything and your dis your discussion of using mics to EQ rather than EQ itself, I just thought, Al must have the most insane encyclopedic knowledge of of microphones of anybody alive. I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> and if I do, I probably forgot half of it, you know. Do you think it's safe to assume that you could, you could pick up a mic and go, okay, I know in my head this is going to sound roughly kind of like this. I mean, you may not know the exact details yeah. of it, but you may just know, okay, this is going to be good for the trombones. Yeah, pretty much. I know what kind of mics would work on trombones or trumpets or whatever. Yeah. I know what mics to go to first. And then sometimes I go to that mic and it may not be the right mic and I'll have to try something else, but pretty much my instincts are good. It also helps that between Al's microphones and Capitol's microphones, we have a lot of the best microphones in the world. I mean, we're not hurting for, you know, we do entire orchestral dates with just U67s and U47s and M50s. I mean, we're, we're kind of spoiled that way <laughs> and we know it, but, you know, or when the 67 breaks, we just go get another one. Yeah. It's, you know, we have, we have those kind of options. So, right. I mean, that also helps with the no EQ thing. You know, it's great when you have 47, you know, you know, yeah. we're not dealing with a, a lot of inexpensive microphones. Yeah, we work with good mics. As a matter of fact, when we were doing Sinatra, the duets, we had so many 67s up on brass and strings. And, you know, it was just amazing. So we had three guys just sitting with their backs against the wall with 67s plugged in, warmed up in case the mic went out. So they could just run up and change it. You know, we changed the mic in like less than a minute. And doing the reason we did that is because, you know, with Frank, you get one chance, you know, and that's it. So we wanted to make sure we did it. And Phil Ramon, it was his idea to do that, to have it around in case. I look at you and, and I know your body of work. And I know that, you know, to me, you're a legend. 
but you've worked with some legends of music that who have huge egos. I mean, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> yeah, huge egos. And and you you have maintained your place there. What's what have you learned over the years about working with such a variety of egos and how to how to keep everybody happy? Well, I think, you know, after and certainly it's experience. You get to kind of know what a person's like or you see their temperament and so you just don't feed into something that's going to, you know, put the hair on, up on the back of their neck. So, yeah, it's a it's a, it's kind of being diplomatic. You know, you 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 know how to stroke somebody and and how to get along. And we were doing uh, a Bob Dylan the first time, and this is on the Shadows in the Night album that came out. After the first night, you know, Bob is a very private guy. And after the first night, we listened back to the couple things we had, and it, it really sounded good. And when he got up and turned around, I just ran up and gave him a big fucking hug. And and I felt him stiffen for a second. And then all of a sudden, he just relaxed. And and that was it. It broke the ice. And from then on, we were high-fiving one another. And, uh, you know, they got to know, the artist has to know that you're there, you're on their side, you want to make them the most comfortable that they can be and do the best job you can for them. And, and when you do that, they relax and, and they're open to it. Steve's like that too. I mean, we, you know, he's out there finding out everybody's comfortable, you know, if a chair isn't right, it's being changed. You know, we just, it's, it's important that everybody is just comfortable. Don't have to worry about anything, but what they have to do. You talked about this in the film. You everything had been set up ahead of time, so that that preparation before a session. I mean, I've I've always found that when I go into a session prepared to that degree, everything just flows so much better. And I, I guess for you guys, it's just like that's just how you do it because you have a you work with large groups of people, and if you're not prepared, you're gonna suck. Well, Steve is always here. He gets here before I do, and I'm always two hours before the session. And by the time I get here. Things are just about all set up, and and they're, they're checking microphones for phase. Uh, we check all the microphones, talking to some. You know, everything is set up. How we're going to lay it out on the board. We we have all that done, and then a half hour before the date, Steve and I can sit down and have a cup of coffee and relax because we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Everything works. All the mics have been scratched out. If it's something we didn't like, we change it. If we didn't like the way this setup was, we'd move stuff. But it was all done at least a half an hour before. So we didn't we don't have to worry about something going wrong. It's all right there. And if something does happen, it's easily fixed right away. And and that's just on the day of the session. We've also spent time before the session, you know, once we get once we get a session and we get the instrumentation, Al and I'll sit down and say, Okay, how are we gonna do this? How are we gonna set this up? What mics do you you know do we want to use the normal stuff? Do you want to use something different? You know, we got this, you know, this is a pretty basic setup for us, except that we have an accordion. Where are we going to put that? Where? Yeah. So we talk about it before then. So by the time we get to the day, you know, a lot of those decisions, at least the basic ones, have been made. Um, and then our guys, especially if we're here at Capitol, you know, they'll set the room up for us. They set the chairs and the lights and the stands and hang the mics and all that stuff. And then, like Al said, we come in in the morning and, and test all this stuff and make sure it's working. So it's obviously, it's not just the two of you. It's Oh yeah, no, a t- there's a staff that yeah. goes on. There's setup guys and stuff, runners, 
Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is both Steve and I are both microphone freaks. So Audio Technica will have a new microphone and, and, uh, you know, they'll send it to me to try out and we'll say, oh, great, let's try this. So we're always trying stuff. We'll put it on and, you know, in two minutes we know whether we like it or not. You know, we find some really, really good mics that way. So do you continue to to add mics to the collection over the years? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got plenty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Are you always on the lookout for other 67s and 47s? Well, Capital takes care of that. You know, they have so many 67s. I don't, I only have the one, actually, it belongs to Tommy LaPuma. You know, I have a lot of M149s and a lot of Royal mics, a lot of Audio Technica mics and well, good German microphones, you know. Yeah, we don't, we don't buy a lot of, neither one of us or the studio for that matter. We're not looking out for vintage mics. We're not looking for to buy a 47 stuff. Usually if we're adding mics to, to a collection, it's a new mic that somebody comes along. We have plenty of, you know, I see we, you know, again, here's the spoiled guys. We have plenty of old Neumann mics here. at. And if we need something, if we need something special, we'll just rent it for the day. Um, Stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So what what we're usually finding is people who make, like Al said, new mics that are coming out, you know, like when Bronner started making his mics. Right. You know, it was like, wow, this is a great one. Add that to the collection. When, uh, you know, Royer started making their mics. Wow, these are great in the collection. So, so we're not, we're not buying, we're not buying used vintage gear where if, if something's being added to this, to the arsenal, it's usually something brand new. The uh, Audio Technica uh, 5040 caught my attention in that film. I think you were using it as a secondary mic on one of the vocalists. It's the one with the little rectangular capsules. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, the 5040. It works great on female vocalists. Yeah, that was a. I don't. We don't have that one. That was a loner that day. Yeah, I think that was it. really early on. That was one of the early ones. But we do use a lot of the the ribbon mics. The oh, I can never remember the numbers now. Um, the forty eighty. <laughs> audio Technica forty eighty. All the Royal ribbon mics we use a lot of. Audio Technica has a fifty forty five. That's a fabulous mic that on became, overheads. That became Al's overheads mic. Um, overhead I mics. Love them on overheads. They're, they're really beautiful, crystal clear. The lack of um, EQ involved, I have to ask, what about compression when working with a big band in that scenario? Well, I use a little compression, not not a, a lot. Um, there's no compression on like the trombones, trumpets, or saxophones. There may be a little bit on the bass. I use two M149s on the bass, one on the F-hole and one a little higher up by, by the fingerboard. And I put them into uh, a Summit 100, and we just tap it, maybe a dB. I just like the sound of the, the warmth of the tubes. Same with vocalists. Uh, you know, fortunately, here we have Fairchild uh, compressors, so I love that. And we'll we'll use it on a vocalist, but just tapping it, maybe a dB, maybe two. Mm-hmm. But basically to get the sound of the tubes, just gives a nice warmth to the uh, vocal. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to take a sponsor break here with Audio-Technica. And ironically, Steve and Al have been uh, using some uh, Audio-Technica mics in their session. And in particular, I don't know if you caught that, Al mentioned the AT4080, which of course is one of the ribbon mics that Audio-Technica has. And We also, if you look on the Working Class Audio site, we actually have some samples of that mic, some vocal samples, acoustic guitar and electric guitar, uh, downloadable as 24-bit 48K files. 
uh, with a readme to explain what's what's all there. Make sure you check that out. That's under the uh, WCA bonus content, the, uh, and you'll see WCA Audio Technica mic samples. So you can check that out. That mic sounds super smooth. It's super warm. It's got a proprietary microlinear ribbon imprint for superior durability. Uh, it's got an innovative dual ribbon construction for increased sensitivity. It's got some very powerful rare earth magnets in there for high output level. And it's got an ultra fine mesh in the grill that helps protect against uh, ribbon damage, which is obviously important. And in typical Audio Technica fashion, it can handle high SPL situations and uh, has a, an extended frequency response. Also, got a custom shock mount, which provides superior isolation. Of course, it's phantom powered, as I mentioned, which helps provide a very stable impedance and higher output for maximum compatibility with microphone preamps. And uh, yeah, you should check it out. The AT4080 phantom powered bi-directional ribbon microphone from Audio Technica. So make sure you head on over to the, to the WCA bonus content and download those samples. You could check that out. So that's it. Let's get back into our interview with Al Schmidt and Steve Genowick on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I can only imagine, Al, that go- going back to the days of, you know, work, you working on like Henry Mancini sessions, what other, I mean, other than the obvious things like Pro Tools and the change in the music industry, what, have you noticed any great differences between those days and now in terms of whether it's session flow or, or anything that sticks out like that? Well, I think some of the things are like the, the, uh, the new reverbs that are out, you know, the Bercasti, um, beautiful uh, reverb. Uh, I have a 6,000 that I love. So those things, you know, uh, back then we didn't have any of that when we were doing Rancini and it was all live chambers. We had five live chambers and I used five of them on a date and I would, I would have left, center, right, and left, center, and right, center. And whatever I panned, into those positions on um, when I was recording, that's what chamber that instrument went into. So it went into the the echo there. It didn't come back in stereo. It came back in mono. Huh. So yeah, it was it was cool, and they were great live chambers. You don't see that much. A lot of studios don't have live chambers. Capitol has eight of them under the parking lot, and they're fantastic. And so I get to use live chambers all the time i love it yeah i think uh up here in northern california fantasy studios has i think they have three I think yeah um very few studios have chambers that are as big as ours too yeah oh yeah ours are under the parking lot ours are ours are pretty good size yeah and weren't those chambers under capital threatened by some construction at one point yeah yeah Yeah, they were but we got that that's gone away as of now (laughs) till the next bout of construction comes around but they actually made them a historic landmark so the building we're in now, we're in the tower right now. So as far as I understand it, we actually have, we're actually three historic landmarks. The building's a landmark, the studios are a landmark, and the echo the chambers are their own landmark. Right. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. That was a, So they, they can't be destroyed, basically. That was a smart move. Yeah, that was, you know, anything you can do to save the history, right? What about the mic placement over the years, Al? Has that really changed all that much for you? Do you go through phases of different setups? I think now um, I have a tendency to use more microphones than I did back then. Back then, the boards were smaller. You know, when I started, we had an eight input board. You could only use eight microphones. That was it. Yeah. So there was no place else to plug in a ninth. So um, so I, I back then, we learned to use 
you know, like the upright bass and, and the, the acoustic rhythm guitar would be on one microphone and, and you would balance them. You'd have one guy move in a little or one guy move back or whatever to get you balanced. Today, we don't have to worry about that. I put two mics up instead of the one that was there. So, uh, and, and we only used one mic on a piano in those days uh, because we didn't have, again, all the inputs. Today, we use two mics on the piano. Used a couple mics on the brass section. Maybe now I'll use eight mics, four on the trumpets and four on the trombones. So yeah, that's changed. Mm -hmm. Other than that, no. And the fact that we have all these great microphones now, you know, years ago, before the 47, uh, you know, came around, we, we were using uh, Western Electric 639s, 77s, 44DXs, uh, you know, salt shaker microphones. So today we have so many great microphones to use. And uh, yeah, so I think that's a big thing. Hmm. And I, 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 I use a lot more microphones today. Like just watching you work, both of you work together, I thought, you know, there's such a fluidity to the whole thing of what you do. And you don't seem to get caught up in, I mean, there, there's a lot of fine details going on, you know, not to dismiss that, but it seems that a lot of engineers these days get caught up in the minutia and they want to know like such, you know, tiny details of, well, did he set the microphone four inches from the kick drum or was it three and a half inches? And, <laughs> and to watch you work, I think, God, it just seems like you look at the situation on the ground, meaning, you know, what the musicians on the floor, you put the mics in the place that makes sense to your ear. And then you go in and mix it, as you as you would normally, and uh, I don't know. I, I am I off base on that? Do you? Well, not necessarily. Um, maybe a little bit. Uh, you know, we put the mics out there and all, but that doesn't mean when I come in and I open the mics uh, that the mic is in the right spot. I may go out and move the mic an inch, you know, forward an inch back or to to the left or right, uh -huh. uh, and I'll do that on on various mics. You know, raise them up a little or, or lower them. And then I'll come back and listen and until I get what I want. Pretty much now, since I've been doing it for so long, I have an eye to where it should be, and that's where I put it. And ninety-nine percent of the time, that's where it'll stay. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, those, those little details you're talking about in, in session flow. I mean, those details are are our problem as the engineers. We try not to make them the musician's problem or the client's problem. So we, you know, we want the session to run fluidly for them when they're making music they should just have to worry about making the music we, right. we don't want them to worry about technical stuff and you know it, it's so you know we try to keep all the the technical stuff out of the music making process that that's our that's our job not theirs so so we don't we try not to make it about us in the control room exactly yeah <laughs> and the other thing is with steve and i both i think we both love music and 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 on top of that, we love capturing sound. So, you know, between the two, it just doesn't get any better. You know, we get in a car sometimes and we're going to work. I get on the freeway and I just thank you, God, you know, that I'm here. I am going to work, getting paid for something I would do for nothing, you know, and. <laughs> Don't it's tell just, anybody that. Yeah, right. <laughs> but well, I heard he's, he would do it for nothing, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've done a lot of that, too. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the other thing about the records we do, too, is most of the time the record's going down live. So we got live musicians out there. So it's kind of an instant gratification for us. 
you know, we don't very rarely will you ever hear us go, can you play the kick drum? Boom, <laughs> boom, boom. You know, it, it's, you know, so we go out there and the music, the band plays and it sounds like a record and they come in and everybody's happy and everybody high fives each other. And then we move on to the next song. So, so there isn't a lot of, of labor intensive, you know, we're not worried about where the guitar amp's going to sit in the room to make it sound great. And how do we, I mean, we, we can get into that stuff if, if we're doing that kind of a job, but, but for the most part, especially on the big band and the orchestral stuff, it is really instant gratification. And it's a lot of fun because there's a lot of people around and, you know, they're all fun people, you know, it's musicians, they're crazy. They're fun to hang out with. So, and, you know, we're capturing music and, you know, we're not, digging in a coal bin or, or, you know, in a coal mine, you know, I mean, we're not driving a truck to 16 hours a day. We're in a nice environment making music. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And they bring us lunch. And yep. they bring you lunch. <laughs> yeah. I True. mean, and you're staring at it as you're talking to me. Sorry about that. I wanted, there was a couple technical things I wanted to run by you. Uh, uh -oh. the, the little galaxy phase checker. I always think I got to get one of those, but yeah, that thing saves. I always lives. forget. It's, yeah, to the, the check the polarity of the microphones. We every single session that happens at Capitol, right? The polarity gets checked, and you'd be amazed when we go to other studios and oh. check polarity. How many bad cables we find? Ah, oh. <laughs> yeah, bikes out of phase. Yeah, interesting. That's yeah. That's the, that's an e that's one of those easy things. It's it's so simple to get. Again, and we're not talking about phase. We're talking about polarity, electronic right. polarity. So, but you know, you have a, you have four mics on a trumpet section, and one of them's you know the polarity is out of phase. You know, you may not hear it as being weird, but it certainly helps to have all those kind of things. Yeah, it, that's the easy stuff to get right. So we try to get that right from the beginning. In the film, there's a point at which you have to do some punch-ins. Steve, you you were able to quickly go to the correct bar. How are you mm -hmm. keeping track of that in Pro Tools? When you watch the film, those particular sessions, we had a click. We were on a grid. Mm. Um, that was predetermined. So Chris Walden, who was who, that was his record. He he brought sessions into me. He had already predetermined. I mean, they were mostly you know straight clicks straight through. But he knew what the tempo was going to be and stuff like that. So on that particular session, right from the start, I had a a tempo map and a grid that matched the charts that I was looking at. Um, if we don't have that, a lot of times as the song's going down, I'm following the chart and I just drop markers in Pro Tools for the bar numbers. You know, every four bars, I drop a marker or I have sometimes I'll have somebody do it for me. If I'm doing something else, I'll have one of the setup guys, you know, one of our runners or whoever, you know, grab numbers. Sometimes we'll write them on the chart. But, yeah, we always try to know exactly where we are. In Pro Tools, it's a little easier because you have the visual thing, too. Mm -hmm. You know, so they'll say, you know, OK, where's bar 42? Well, the trumpets aren't playing for four bars before bar 42. So I can look and see where they're not playing. But for the most part, I like to know kind of where I am in the chart in relation to that. And it's amazing. It saves so much time. And, you know, they want to, the trumpet players will say, hey, we made a mistake at bar 42. Uh, can we punch in four bars there? So Steve's, okay, I'll give you the from bar 40. And it's right there. So there's no time wasted. And there was any scuffling around trying to figure out where we are. You know, he's got it down. It's nice in Pro Tools too, because, you know, we have quick punch and undo. I mean, on when we were recording on tape and when we still do in rare instances, mm -hmm. then I'm a little more careful about, okay, hang on. I got to listen to this for a minute. I got to yeah. find the punch. I got to make sure where I'm going in, going out and pro tools. I can be a little more cavalier about it and just roll back <laughs> and drop in. Cause I know I can, yeah. I'm in quick punch and I can move it around a little bit. Like, as you saw in the film, I'm not 
getting precious and making a mark. I'm, and I'm still punching in and punching out, you know, just like I would on a tape machine. Um, but it's nice to kind of know, you know, I, there's, there's been times where I'm not exactly sure which lick, you know, if it's this lick or that lick that they really wanted, but I'll just punch in and I can move it around if I need to. So, so it makes that, that makes it a little bit quicker. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there was, that session just went down so fast on the film that, I was in awe of the whole thing. It was it was fascinating to watch. What was equally as fascinating, and some people who see the film might also get this. Andrew Sheps is a friend of mine, and and I have great respect for him. And and to see him in the position of student in that film, I think speaks volumes. It's it's also you know generationally it's it's intriguing to see as well to see him sitting so patiently. I mean, I don't think he said a word in the film, at oh, least. Oh, he did. Oh, he did. Yeah, he did. He, <laughs> in the seminar, he, he was asking lots of questions. And yeah. he uh, he told me it, that changed the way he did things on that day. What he learned that day changed the way he did things. So, uh, and Andrew's a dear friend of mine and, and a great guy and a great engineer. But he learned something. When, when we announced that we were going to do the seminar... Andrew was the first person to call, first very call. first person. And he said, I want to go. And we said, and he said, I already paid. And we said, Andrew, you know, you can come. And come he said, no, 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 I want, I want to pay yeah. because I want to sit right in the front and I want to ask questions. And I want, he said, I want the whole experience. And so he was the very first person that paid it. And he came and he sat right in the middle <laughs> and he did exactly what he said he yeah. was going to do. And it was great. I'm curious about the impact on you guys the educational element of not only this, but your involvement with Mix with the Masters. What are your thoughts on that? Like, especially where we're at today with the the, the recording industry greatly changed. Well, Steve and I go now. It's uh, it's it'll be my fifth year and Steve's fourth, um, where we go together with Mix with the Masters. These are engineers, guys who make their living engineering. Coming to a class, it's always fifteen guys and um, and girls and 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 girls, right? <laughs> we get a couple of girls in there. We we wish we could get more, and I think more women should be in the business. Uh, I don't know why they aren't, but we don't have enough. But anyway, they're there to learn our techniques, and it's amazing how we change their thoughts on things and how they do things. And these guys from Greece or guys from Finland. Uh, Argentina, Brazil, all over the world, Italy, they all learn something. And and Steve and I get emails all the time about, hey, I learned, I tried this uh, and man, it just came out so great. And thanks, you know, I, something I learned at the week with you at Mix with the Masters. And now we put out the series of deconstructing a mix um, that shows how we set up a mix from the start to the finish. And it's, I think it's a series of four, half hour. Yeah, about, how many? I don't know how long they are, but whatever. And you can buy these things. And, and um, so students all over the world can sit down and watch exactly how we do things and how we prepare. And uh, I, it, it's great. And the fact that we're able to give back, I mean, that's what it's all about. I, we do uh, Grammy in the schools. We give back to the high school bands we steve records the most of the time i mix all the stuff um 
you know, it's, it's great going around the schools, talking to people, inspiring people, telling them, you know, how, how great it is to do what we do and how fun, much fun it is and that we make a decent living doing it also. So, yeah, it's an inspiration to a lot of children, a lot of kids and, and, and young people and to older engineers who are making a living. I also think, you know, now, like, like when I started 25 years ago, sort of in the 90s, you know, this, this whole studio system is pretty much, I mean, outside of a handful of places like Capital, you know, you, it's hard to get the opportunity to, to see these guys work. I mean, you know, I've been here at Capital for 21 years. I mean, I've been an assistant for all, all my idols as from an engineering point of view. You know, I mean, I learned the Glenn John miking technique from Glenn John's. You know, I learned yeah. how the Beatles records were made because I did records with Jeff Emmerich. You know, I work with Al, I, you know, all these guys. So and that system of of coming up as a runner and all that stuff, it's it's a very rare thing nowadays. It's not it's not available to a lot of people. So. So by us going out and doing like a mix with the masters or, or the seminar that we did, the, the Studio Prodigy seminar or, or, or whatever the, you know, whatever it is, talking to Blackbird Academy or wherever. It's sometimes it's the only opportunity that that these young engineers have to get next to a guy like Al and see how it's actually done. And most of the time they're amazed at how simple it actually is and that, you know, how, how do you get that great sound? It's like, well, you take the mic and you put it right in front of Diana Krall's mouth and she sings and that's <laughs> the end of it. <laughs> and Just knowing what mic to use. Yeah. So. <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, again, we get a lot of, you know, you guys work so fast and then they go, but it's so simple. And we say, yeah, well, you have the right mic and a good room and a great musician and it's a good song and, you know, why mess with it? Yeah, I mean, you, you have all the key elements. You've got top-notch players. You guys are at the top of your game, surrounded by fantastic uh, tools to use. It's not always that way. <laughs> we, we do have our moments where, we're, yes. where we scuffle a little bit when we don't have a great musician or whatever it is. And, you know, or sometimes we get stuff to mix and we just sit there and go, oh, God. And then the EQs come out <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff. Interesting. Uh, Al, I'm curious, you know, you've, you're an influence to a lot of people now. I'm curious who are maybe two people that you can name right now who really had a big impact on you engineering wise. Well, there were two or three, maybe my uncle who had a recording studio in New York city. He was an engineer for Brunswick for years and then opened the first independent recording studio in New York. So when I was a kid, Every weekend, I would go over to the studio. He didn't have any children, and he was my my father's brother, and he was also my godfather. So he didn't have kids, so I was like a kid, his kid. And so I watched him record all these great big names from, you know, the Andrews sisters, Bing Crosby, you name it. And I would go to these when I was eight, nine, and he would have me clean patch cords, and, and I would set up chairs and watch sessions and uh so so he was a major influence because i always wanted to be like him we were really poor and he always had a lot of money in a beautiful apartment and a new car and took me to great places hockey games and the fights and stuff so um yeah he was kind of my idol and then when i when i had the first opportunity when he called me and asked if i would be willing to, to if i was interested in getting a job at a, a friend of his had a studio uh, and they were looking for an apprentice and asked if I would like to do that. I was absolutely yes. And so I went there 
And I got the job. My first day, Monday, I go to there at nine o'clock. The boss takes me in and introduces me to the guy that's going to be my mentor, Tommy Dowd. Man. So how does it get any better than that? I mean, I spent eight years with Tommy, except for one year. And as his gopher and assistant and and just a blotter learning everything he did to becoming, I was like his kid brother. We really liked one another. We became best of friends. We did so many things together, socially, hockey games and all that stuff. And, and, um, and he took his time to teach me and, and show me how to do things. So he bought me a notebook and I drew out diagrams of all his setups and, and stuff. And, uh, and he was the one that pushed me in on things. Um, Atlantic Records, you know, he, we were doing all the Atlantic Record work. So when he couldn't do something or it was a Saturday and he wanted to take off, he said, take, let Al do it, you know, and, and I'd be there with Neshwi and, uh, uh, or Ahmed Erdogan and uh, and um, wow. and we'd be doing the the coasters or the clovers or Ruth Brown or uh, Clyde McFadder and I got to do all these things and then uh, because of that I got other work and started doing all these jazz projects and um, so yeah that was it so I think that those were two of the my greatest influences so those are two of the main ones and and. Uh, and I learned so much from them about how to go about things. And, you know, my uncle told me, if you treat this equipment like it's a Swiss watch, take care of it, keep it clean, mm-hmm. keep it working all the time, it'll it'll work for you. So I learned that. That became very important to me. It was a great lesson. Tommy was the one that taught me about how to use microphones, where to put them. And, and um, so it was, it was great. Those are the two. Steve, can you imagine, like, in years to come, uh, you answering the same question? I mean, what you well, yeah, what I you've mean, learned from Al? I, I mean, you already experienced coming into it with him, but what you will walk away with at the end of your your time in this business, I can I can't even imagine. Yeah, I've been pretty lucky. Uh, you know, I've like I said, I've gotten to work with the best engineers in the world. I mean, obviously Al. You know, we've been together so long. Um, but all, but all the guys, you know, yeah. again, being at a place like this and I made a conscious decision very early on in my career that I wanted to work with the with the big guys in the big places. And I wanted to be, you know, I didn't want to work at the, you know, twenty five dollar an hour demo studio down the street. I wanted to work at Capital <clears throat> and Record Plan and Ocean Way. And those those were the those were the projects I wanted to do. And, you know, so I put myself in the position to to do that. So, yeah, I've gotten to work with, right. you know, all kinds of fantastic engineers and I can, you know, I can. I can probably like I could probably go through a recording date that I do or a mix that I do and tell you where I got everything from. You hmm. know, this I took from Al and this I took from Elliot Shiner and this I got from Ed Journey and that I got from whoever, you know, whoever the guys are. You know, there's just no better school than yeah. being around it and and hearing it. And it's not so much I, I think for me it was more like like when I started this you know, 20 some years ago, if you would have told me I'd be making jazz and big band records, you know, I probably would have smacked you because I didn't really (laughs) do that. I thought I was going to be making Rolling Stones records and, you know, whatever. And, but, (laughs) but, you know, I, first of all, I found out I liked it. It was really fun. But then I would learn, you know, I mean, uh, being here and and being around guys like that, like I know what a horn section is supposed to sound like. 
you know, and it's really easy to do here at Capital with the horn. You know, I put the mics up and it sounds that way. But when I go someplace else or when I get something to mix and I push the faders up and go, oh, my God, it doesn't sound like that. Well, I know what I want it to sound like. I know what it should sound like. So I have a place to go. You know, now I have to try to get it there. So, again, I think it comes back to that just being around all these guys and being around really good music and really good musicians. And, and that that's, you know, the best thing that I could have ever done for myself. And uh, the other thing I think is that we both, I, and I'm sure it's the same with Steve, I learned something every single day, something I didn't know before. There's, there's always some little thing I learned that gets filed away, you know? And mm -hmm. sometimes I don't even realize that I've, I've learned something until the next day maybe I'm doing something else. Oh, yeah, that, I, I, I remember that from yesterday. Let me try that. So, you know, you, you're always... You got to be a blotter. You got to learn. You got to absorb and just keep going. You know, we speak a lot about um, the financial aspects of, of recording and surviving. You guys are in a very fortunate position. You guys are, when somebody hires you, they're getting, in my opinion, they're getting the best of the best. And you put your all into it. And you've managed to keep that going for quite a long career. What would your advice be to younger engineers coming up in the current environment where financially it may not be as lucrative or rewarding as it has been in your time? Well, it may not be at the start, but you never know where you're going to, you know, find that group that may be the one that's going to, you know, want to use you all the time and, and pay good money. I always feel when people hire Steve and I, they get their money's worth. You know, they get all our experience, all our care and our love for what we do. You know, I always tell them, follow your heart. If you're doing something you love, you know, that's the old bullshit that, you know, you do something you love, you never work a day in your life. Well, maybe it's not quite that true. But if you're doing something you love, eventually you'll start making some money at it and you'll get that break. And, and if you don't try, it will never happen. Mm -hmm. So you can't just say, well, I can't do this because I'm not going to make money. And it, it, you, you do something because you love to do it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's it. If you love what you do, you'll always be happy. Yeah, and I think if you have the expectation that you're going to come into this business and, and become rich, yeah. I, mean, sure. yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, you can. There are people that have done that. And, yeah. you know, and there's, and, you know, no matter what they tell you, you know, I like it to say I walk through a parking lot every day that says there's still money in the record business. Yeah. Um, so it's there, but it's not quite as prevalent yeah. as it used to be. But I don't know of anybody who's been in the business for a long time who's successful, you know, who is doing this for the money. I mean, the, yeah. the money's great. And there's a way to make a living at it. And you have to, you know, it depends on what it is. You know, I'm a staff yeah. engineer at a studio. I, I keep this staff job for reasons. You know, it's so, you know, everybody has their own path and their own way to do it. But I think if, if you're doing this because you want to get make money and get rich or whatever it is, then yeah. you're doing it for the wrong for reasons. The I think, like Al said, if you're doing it because you love it, the money will come, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and you have to, you know, you live within your means. I think one of the things I remember Ed Cherney telling me really early on, he said, treat this like a business. You know, this is, it's your job and it's fun and, you know, you're working with your friends and you might be doing, you know, a demo for the band from the bar or whatever, but it's still a business, you know, watch your money, pay your taxes, you know, make sure that you're, you know, that you're not too cavalier about what you're doing, that, that it, it's your small business. So make sure you treat it that way. 
Interesting. I have a couple questions before we wrap up coming from people on Facebook. Jacob um, Jacob Hiltz, I think that's how you say his, his uh, name. He says, I currently own a smaller studio. I track, mix, and master there. Sometimes all three on a project. Other times just one. Was wondering if it makes more sense to focus on one aspect of making music or to try to stay varied and see what sticks. Wow, that's a tough question. Yeah. You know, I would do the thing that you feel you're most com comfortable with. And if it's doing all three and you think you're going to be doing well doing all three, great. Uh, maybe sooner or later, you'll be um, more efficient and, and more expert at one of the three. And then that's the one you'll people will want you for. So uh, do do whatever makes you comfortable. Hmm. You know. I think also in this in the culture of the business nowadays, being a little diverse is not a bad idea. You know, if you can, if if you're good at mastering and you know how to do it, then you know go ahead and do it. And you know, it, you may be a mixing guy and a mastering guy. You don't necessarily have to master your own stuff. But I think certainly knowing how to do something is never going to hurt you. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. When we learned, you know, when earlier, when I started with Tommy and all that, we we mastered, we did our own mastering and all that, you know. So it was, um, you know, the engineer did everything, followed everything through. And so... I still do that now. I mean, I don't do my own mastering, but I follow through. Steve and I go to the mastering sessions on our stuff all the time because hmm. I want to be there and see what's going on. I've heard too many things that got destroyed in mastering, and I'm not going to let that happen. So we both go all the time. In this day and age, I mean, there's a lot of mastering that's happening where it's unattended. Yeah. So mm -hmm. like you yeah, we, said, we Al, try not to do that. You, you said, you know, when people hire you, they get the, you know, quite a package of, of talent and experience. And it's nice to hear that you follow up all the way through to the very end. Yeah, absolutely. And just to also that, to follow up on what Al said about when you hire us, you get everything. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's a guy off the street, if he pays the money and, and he wants to do a session here, he gets the same job as Paul McCartney. You know, we don't we don't differentiate between, oh, this is whatever. This is never going to come out. This sucks. This whatever. They get the same they get the same quality treatment, yeah. and treatment that a big star would get. Yeah, I think that that's a, a common thought in many people's heads that aren't, you know, maybe on the level of, say, Michael Buble or Brian Setzer. Not all musicians realize how accessible guys like you are. You just you just pick up the phone and book, try to book the session. <laughs> Yeah. That's right. You just sure. got to call us. People used to say, that. how do we get out to do our session? Yeah, you call them on the telephone. <laughs> There's a new thing, the ask telephone. Yeah. I have one more question uh, from Facebook. A guy named Dan Hicks says, what does mixing to serve the song and not your ego mean to you? I don't know. It's kind of self-explanatory, but. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you do mix to serve the song and the artist. And not for your own ego. I mean, I didn't never mix anything because, oh, boy, I'm going to do this. This will make me look good. <laughs> no, you know, we do it because um, we want the artists to get the best they can and get the best out of the song. So, yeah, it's self-explanatory. Very, very much so. Yeah, you, you have nothing to prove at this point, Al. <laughs> well, hopefully. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, I, I want to thank Great. both of you for taking the time and uh, – it's a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, great. Well, it was our fun. pleasure. We had a good time. Okay. Uh, 
give Jerry a hug? Oh, I will. <laughs> I will. He always comes over to my house, and I never buy decaf coffee, but Jerry brings his own. <laughs> oh, he drinks decaf? Yeah. Oh, the poor guy. I know. Oh, wow. Thank you, Al. Fun. Oh, great. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This was great. Well, guys, take care. Have a great session, and uh, thank you again. Okay. Thanks, Thank Matt. you. Okay, bud. Bye. Hey, we got to get Nico on your show too. Yeah, get Nico. Uh, Nico Boas. Yeah. Yeah. I've got his phone number. He told me. He said, "Just call me." Yes. Yeah, call yeah. him. He'll do it, and he's great. You'll have a great time with Tell him. Tell him we did it, and he has to. I do know. It. See yeah. you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, yeah. Al. Okay, you got yeah. it, bud. Bye, guys. Thanks, man. Well, my friends, there it is. Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick on the Working Class Audio Podcast. What a true honor to have those two individuals on. And I want to, uh, of course, thank Al and Steve for for joining us today. But um, that's it. We are out of time. So, of course, we got to thank everybody. Of course, I've already thanked Al and Steve. Want to make sure and thank Cliff Truesdale for his music, Chuck Smith for his voiceover, and Cole Williams for his help with the show. I want to thank our sponsors, Audio Technica, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, Gearslets.com, and DistroKid. And hey, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.